The slaves in Jamaica became fully free in 1838, but their emancipation could have occurred far sooner. In 1799, Toussaint Louverture, himself a former slave who now ruled the colony that would become the nation of Haiti, was read into a plan to launch a 4,000-man expeditionary force against British-controlled Jamaica. Once ashore, they would initiate a plan to poison the governor's coffee on Christmas Day, before then encouraging a mass uprising which would seize the colony for France and freedom. The plot never got off the ground, however, as Toussaint, the great abolitionist himself, sold out the conspirators to his British and American contacts. Isaac Sasparos, a French-Jewish idealist, was subsequently arrested for his role within the planned uprising. He was left for days, rotting in a cell in Kingston Town. A coffin happened to have been left as his only companion. He was hanged two days before Christmas, the intended day of a slave revolt that had never occurred. Toussaint Louverture led the only successful slave revolt in history. Yet his rebellion isn't the only slave uprising that is worth knowing about. Before we pick up his story, we'll begin with a quick look at the Baptist Revolt. Jamaica's founding story is quite similar to Haiti's own. Christopher Columbus claimed the island for Spain as a part of his second voyage to the Americas. The indigenous Taino people were soon forced into slavery and eventually exterminated. Control of the island transferred to the British after they let loose an army of privateers, which is a fancy word for government-approved pirates. They were commanded by Sir Henry Morgan, the man who would go on to serve as the inspiration for the rum peddler, Captain Morgan. The island's conditions were ripe for the production of sugar, the main cash crop of the era. Soon, they expanded their options through the distillation and production of rum, which on the island was first identified by the name of Kill Devil. Writer Wayne Curtis reveals in his book, And a Bottle of Rum, that the decision to make the Caribbean signature liquor came down to the simple calculation of the fact that they had nothing better to do with the molasses, a byproduct of sugar cultivation. Prior to the invention of rum, molasses had primarily been used as the chief ingredient in an enema designed to deal with the dry grips, another unwanted byproduct, this time of the lead-infected water throughout the Caribbean. As Kill Devil took over the island, the British became known for their hard-partying ways, with Captain Thomas Walduck remarking in 1708 that upon all the new settlements the Spaniards make, the first thing they do is build a church. The first thing ye Dutch do upon a new colony is to build them a fort. But the first thing ye English do, be it the most remote part of ye world, or amongst the most barbarous Indians, is to set up a tavern or drinking house. Obsessed with the profits that came from sugar and rum, J. 
Jamaica's imported African slaves soon outnumbered its colonists by an absurd figure of 12 to 1. During the upheaval that came with the transition of Spanish to English rule, a significant number of slaves escaped to the hilly interior of the island. These men and women took on the name of Maroons. As an English word, it had a dual meaning, referencing the French word of Maroon, which translates to runaway black slave, but also to Cimarron, which in Spanish has three meanings. The beast who cannot be tamed, living on mountaintops, and wild runaway slave. Britannica is quick to point out that the escaped slaves didn't refer to themselves as maroons. After all, the Spanish version of the word was originally used as a reference point for escaped cattle. Instead, the Jamaican maroons tended to prefer West African terms to describe being hopelessly trapped on an island and surrounded by men and women who sought their re-enslavement. Ever on their guard, these men and women soon became the backbone for all of the island's many revolts. Seeking to appease them, the British granted them political autonomy in 1739. The life of a Jamaican slave was even harsher than in nearby Haiti, as the life expectancy of an enslaved worker was a mere seven years. Historian Tom Zollner reveals that the enslaved people of Jamaica were some of the most abused and powerless people on the globe in 1831. Most were illiterate. Few had ever seen anything but their owner's plantation. Their only weapons were machetes and rocks. They constantly lived on the edge of hunger and harsh punishment. Yet even in this isolated atmosphere of extreme deprivation, they developed durable strategies for a politically successful revolution. Zollner's main thesis is that by the time of the Baptist Revolt, Jamaicans had already perfected techniques that would be utilized by Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, as well as the anti-Nazi French freedom fighters. The Baptist Revolt began shortly after Christmas Day in 1831. It was led by Samuel Daddy Sharp, the slave of an English attorney. Like America's Nat Turner, Daddy Sharp was a lay deacon of the Birchell Baptist Church, utilizing his faith to rally others to his cause. This Jamaican version of the Baptist Church interprets Christianity from an African perspective, merging the worship of Jesus with West African practices such as drumming, dancing, and hand clapping, all of which were hallmarks of the Maral and Obey faiths. Theologian Noel Leo Erskine explains the popularity of the faith by pointing out that it was central to establishing human dignity for the slaves, writing that during slavery, prayer and class meeting under church leaders provided an experience of humanity, dignity, and brotherhood, which no other institution could provide. The stories within the Bible revealed to this illiterate group of captives the existence of biblical Ethiopia and Egypt, 
allowing them to pierce holes in the white man's teaching that only their race was capable of forming a civilization. This Ethiopian-centric viewpoint would eventually become the centerpiece of the theology behind Rastafarianism, which according to the Goucher Journal of Undergraduate Writing, teaches a specific form of critical race theory, one that purports that the white man has constructed and legitimated a society that is oppressive to the black man. The journal informs us that they call this society Babylon, and the Rastas, which won't form until a hundred years after Daddy Sharp's rebellion, make every attempt to defy Babylon by refusing to live by the oppressor's rules. Hence, they wear their hair in dreads and smoke marijuana whenever they desire. Understanding this is key to deciphering a number of Bob Marley quotes, such as, The more people smoke herb, the more Babylon fall. More important to the early Jamaican Native Baptist movement was their strict adherence to the belief that David and Abraham were both black men. This layer of racial identity laid the groundwork for their desire to replicate each man's biblical feats of establishing a kingdom of heaven on earth. The churches in Jamaica quickly became an informal network for spreading news. Toussaint's role in governing Haiti was a frequent topic of conversation, as was the creation of an anti-slavery society in London. Believing a false rumor that their overlords were concealing the fact that the British Parliament had already granted them freedom, Sharp organized a three-day strike, which covered Christmas Day as well as the traditional British holiday of Boxing Day. More than 20,000 forced laborers participated in the labor action. The timing of the strike was pivotal, as it meant that most of the island's crops would be ruined by the end of the protest. Their civil disobedience was predictably met with violence. Fourteen whites were killed over the course of eight days. On the other side of the bloody ledger, 186 slaves lost their lives. The disparity in deaths owes to the fact that Sharp's Christian beliefs guided his hand, urging pacifism as a response to the violence. Gandhi would borrow from Sharp's playbook, as would resistance fighters throughout history as Daddy Sharp set up small, independent cells throughout the island in order to maximize the impact of his general strike. Each cell only knew of Sharp's role, ensuring that the capture of one insurgent group couldn't lead to the capture of the others. Despite the fact that nonviolence protest succeeds at a rate of two to one over violence, the movement was doomed from the start. But what a glorious start it was. It began with a signal fire lit atop Kensington Estate. The lighting of that beacon was immediately answered by a chain of fires from neighboring plantations. One sympathetic white militiaman recalls the whole surrounding country was completely illuminated and presented a terrible appearance even at noonday. 
When, however, the shades of night descended, and the buildings on the side of those beautiful mountains which form the splendid panorama around Montego Bay were burning, the spectacle was awfully grand. The final price tag for the property damage was nothing less than spectacular, with estimates coming in as high as 124 million pounds in today's currency. But as is often the case in the short term, violent countermeasures got the better of the non-violent protesters. Sharp was executed for his role in leading the protest, but a wide net was cast in order to round up suspected participants, with more than 500 slaves being eventually convicted of participating in the rebellion. The executions that followed occurred simultaneously, to the point that the bodies began to pile up. They did so at least until the black slaves relegated to the courthouse, carted the bodies away at night in order to bury them in mass graves outside the town. In order to prevent a reoccurrence, many of the victims' heads were severed and placed around plantations to serve as a warning against future rebellions and the prized chapels of black congregations, the only institution that humanized them, were summarily destroyed. Thus, the Baptist Rebellion failed, but the stories of the violence escaped the island. Reaching the shores of England, they hastened the king's decision to finally set aside the horrors of the peculiar institution. The morning advertiser led the lobbying effort, writing in the wake of the violence that the slaves must be sooner or later set at freedom, whether it be or whether it be not for their benefit, and the sooner that proper steps are taken for this purpose, so much the better. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series regards Toussaint Louverture, the leader of the Haitian Revolution. Episode number three, His Life as a King. Toussaint Louverture had triggered the 1791 Haitian Revolution in an effort to prevent the separation of his enslaved family. Throughout the conflict, he had showcased his bravery, amassing 20 major scars for his efforts. Although he eventually took on the public appearance of an abolitionist, he showed an eagerness to flip sides in order to first and foremost better his own situation. Returning to the French faction at the precise turning point in their victory over the Spaniards meant that Toussaint began 1794 having to prove himself yet again. Despite having been a turncoat, he had immediate sway, as Haiti was lacking the manpower needed to take the fight to the Spanish side of the island, known at this point in time as Santo Domingo. Louvator retained a loyal force of 4,000 and quickly reclaimed cities for his French overlords. It must have been surreal to have been conquered by the man known as the Black Spartacus, 
only to then be liberated by the exact same man. In October, he crossed the island's border, claiming territory and freeing his family from their Spanish imprisonment. Throughout history, Victoria's generals have drawn recruits like honey catching flies. In this instance, however, Louvator was able to announce the Haitian's Second Commission's Emancipation Notice. Joining him now meant fighting for the freedom of those who remained enslaved. Historian Philippe Girard reveals that so many recruits flocked to his side that he was able to add two new regiments to his command. He was able to retain the loyalty of those beneath him through careful consideration of the little things. Historian Jeremy Popkin explains that he promoted loyalists, as did most of history's generals. But he also paid careful attention to every detail of the military situation confronting him, never losing sight of the larger strategic picture, including the importance of providing food, uniforms, and ammunition for his troops. He also recruited a network of informants among the blacks who were forced to serve the forces arrayed against him. Although he was now actively promoting abolition, the man known as Black Spartacus went out of his way to avoid angering the island's white and creole populations. Popkin tells us that like all good politicians, he knew how to frame arguments to appeal to the different audiences he wanted to win over and to change his language to suit new circumstances. Unlike most of history's top generals, Toussaint looked first and foremost to brains rather than brawn. He besieged the city of Mirabalis and worked behind the scenes to convince the community to come over to his side. Thus, he was able to take a key city without spilling a drop of blood. The conflict continued for the better part of a year, putting him up against Biaosu, one of his revolutionary rivals. Louvator was victorious each time the two men clashed, and in July 1795, Spain was forced to sue for peace, ceding Santo Domingo to France. Seeking more power, Toussaint ensured that all of the blacks within the Spanish armies were enrolled directly into his own forces. The only exception was for their leaders, those he condemned to death. It was the first sign of how the black Spartacus would rule, efficiently eliminating his enemies from the island via political means. Although he will never obtain the title of king, which this episode's title suggests, he will rule as though he were a despotic monarch, a man whom Niccolo Machiavelli would have been proud of, a man who knew that it was better to be feared than loved. Spain made no attempt to intervene in the decapitation of their allied black leaders, as Gerard reveals that the Spanish were so quick to deport their black leaders to Cuba that Biaosu's own mother was left behind in haste. Toussaint's rival managed to escape, but the rest of his story followed a common theme in the modern world as he traveled from Cuba to Spanish Florida for his retirement and subsequent death of old age. 
Although Spain had given up the fight, England remained engaged against France. From island havens such as Jamaica, they represented a constant invasion threat. In charge of the largest force on the island, the task was handed down to the main character of our story. After a setback that saw his hand crushed, Louvator relied upon the island's natural defenses to defeat the British. This strategy gelled with his favorite proverb, slowly goes far and patience beats force. The number of soldiers claimed by disease were staggering, as Gerard reveals that in 1794 the British lost 10% of their troops to diseases per month, a rate that rose to 15% in 1795. Their penchant for remaining holed up by the mosquito-infested ports made their troops far more susceptible to tropical diseases than the reinforcements sent from Paris. This doesn't mean that they were immune, however, as the French lost more general officers in the last two years of the Haitian Revolution than in any other campaign during the Napoleonic Wars. Keep in mind that that includes the disastrous invasion of Russia during the winter of 1812. The fight against the British disrupted the only portion of the island's lucrative sugar plantations that hadn't been affected by the 1791 revolution. In this arena, 60 to 70,000 blacks remained beneath the yoke of servitude while Toussaint waited for the island's endemic diseases to deliver the final blow. Jean-Jacques Desselines had by this point become a subordinate of the black Spartacus. The former coffee plantation slave of Toussaint commented that our vengeful climate is proof enough that the whites are not our brothers, and never will be. Because the British continued to cling to the institution of slavery, they were unable to replenish their losses with locals, and gradually were forced to give up their foothold on the island. The victorious Haitians happily raised the French tricolor flag across the entire island. Gerard writes that the flag was locally interpreted with the added twist that the blue, white, and red stripes of the French tricolor were intended to symbolize blacks, whites, and mixed-race people in the colonial context. With victory came the spoils, and the National Convention recognized the work the former slaves had played in their Caribbean victories against the Spaniards and Brits by promoting Louvatour and three other locally-born generals, the first of whom was Vallat, the Creole leader of Camp Francis, the region directly to the east of Louvatour's regional base of Haute de Cap. Also among those promoted by Paris was André Regard, a free man of color who had formed the so-called Legion of the South. Although he offered blacks freedom for serving beneath him, the Legion had an apartheid quality, with advancement limited based upon your skin color. There was immediate friction between Louvatour and the factions of Vallat and Regard, both of whom also viewed themselves as Haiti's leader-in-waiting.
It can be a touch annoying when it seems like a historian or a storyteller sees race seemingly in every single action. But in the case of Haiti, nearly every decision happens to have race baked squarely into it. In the previously established racial hierarchy of the colony, the mixed-race Creoles had existed on the middle rung of a three-rung ladder, beneath whites, but above blacks. In the aftermath of the revolution, the whites maintained their top spot on the ladder through their immense power and influence. But the elevation of blacks to the second rung meant that the biracial population now found themselves at the bottom of a two-rung ladder. By this point, it was clear that Toussaint, a black man, was angling for the top job, which by default would have pushed the Creoles even further down the rigid social hierarchy. The lot struck first. The Creole general attempted a coup during the Ides of March in 1796. Gerard notes, for those who believe that Haiti's presidential seat is cursed, it also appears as though the governor's chair is as well. Popkin notes that on the surface, Vallot's coup seemed to represent a bid for power in the name of the free people of color, a group that had challenged the whites earlier in the revolution, and an effort to exclude the more numerous blacks from the leadership of the colony. It backfired. Completely as Louvatore didn't hesitate and moved his forces against Vallot, who was forced to back down. The episode allowed Toussaint to rise even further in the eyes of the French, as he was now able to present himself as the savior of the white colonial government. As a reward, he was named deputy governor of the colony, a position that far exceeded any achieved by his contemporary mixed-race generals. Calls went out proclaiming Toussaint Louverture as the man whom French Enlightenment thinker Abbe Renal had predicted would emerge to free the slaves of the Caribbean. Still, Santhanox, a white Frenchman who had married a local woman of African descent, remained entrenched in the hearts of the people. It was he, after all, who had forced Paris's hand by issuing the Emancipation Order. Although Toussaint was one of their own, Popkin tells us that at this point, it was by no means certain that the people of the island would automatically prefer a black leader like Toussaint Louverture to this white Frenchman who had demonstrated his genuine concern for the colony's welfare. The Black Spartacus's PR machine had to go into overdrive to ensure that he controlled the narrative. Such action was necessary due to the fact that the men and women around him likely assumed that he inhabited the stereotypes of African-descended men as savage, brutish, and bloodthirsty. The new colonial government of the Third Commission supported by their newly appointed deputy governor, went to work to better the lives of those destined to become Haitians. It was hard sledding. They built a court system based upon French law, but found it difficult to find men with enough education to staff them. They also established a school on the island, 
but had to insist that France send trained teachers to the island in order to support the goal of providing a universal education. Still, elites, of which Toussaint was now one of, continued to send their children to Paris for a proper education. Placide and Isaac were among those who traversed the Atlantic in July of 1796. Toussaint's boys were only 11 and 14. Due to the shifting of geopolitical winds, they would never again be able to set their eyes upon their father. Gerard adds a bit of humor to lighten the situation, though, noting that the boys studied alongside the sons of prominent colonists, both white and of color. It must have been awkward, the historian writes, for white boys orphaned by the Haitian Revolution to share rooms with the sons of the black generals who had launched it. This period was when Toussaint was at his best, representing the singular best option to grab the reins of the government in order to push forward a more positive agenda. Historian Marcus Rainford, in his book, An Historical Account of the Black Empire of Haiti, highlights the man's quality, stating that Toussaint's work in this moment reflected the highest credit on his character and gave dignity to his dominion. He had throughout been the moderator of all the different factions in the island, and was every way fitted for its legislator, as well as its chief. He was indeed one of those characters who invite the principle of an elective monarchy, but which are too rarely found to advise its universal adoption. He fell short in one area, as the colonial government and its victorious general agreed on the immediate need to restore the plantation system which had made Haiti one of the richest islands in the world. Freed slaves, now citizens of France, were ordered to go back to work on their former plantations. This obviously sounds like a restoration of slavery, which it was, but the primary players pointed out that now workers would receive a nominal wage for performing labor which they didn't desire to do. This revival of the plantation system blatantly sidesteps the fact that freedom rests on the ability to choose. Having toiled in the insanely difficult world of sugar cultivation, most blacks wanted to merely live for themselves. These individuals had gathered up small plots of land during the rebellion and were more than content to eke out the life of a subsistence farmer. When it came time to restore the economic engine of the island, there was just one aspect of the plan that Louvator and Santhanax fought over, namely whether or not Toussaint's army was too big and thus needed to be disbanded in order to secure more workers. Seeking to deepen his political connections, Louvator dined regularly at the plantation home of Josephine Bonaparte's family. At the moment, the future dictator was adrift in Egypt, but he seemed to be a good horse to bet on in the race for France. Despite the victories that he accrued, Santhanax's return brought Louvator's political rise to a screeching halt. 
Checks and balances were restored after the third commission removed Toussaint's civilian role as deputy general while retaining his generalship over the colonial armed forces. Rather than lashing out in anger, the black Spartacus reminded himself that slowly goes far and patience beats force. Gerard lets us know that the friction between the two men only increased, with the head politician regularly sending instructions to Louvator's military subordinates in an infuriating breach of the chain of command. Additionally, Santhanax restored the National Guard and rural police force in an effort to buttress his own power. The combined forces of the two armed groups would be enough to challenge Louvator's army. The relationship soured to the point that one year into their divergent roles, Toussaint set plans in motion to push out the man who technically had freed his wife and family from slavery. The pseudo-coup ironically occurred on the fifth anniversary of the overthrow of King Louis XVI. Toussaint, acting as general of the armed forces, used the celebration as cover for stationing his loyal guards strategically throughout the city of Cap. Once they were in place, he informed Santhanax that the only way to avoid bloodshed would be if the commissioner left for France at once to take up a seat in Parliament that he had won in absentia a year earlier. Showing himself to be a man of supreme political intellect, it had been Toussaint himself who had nominated Santhanax for the position in the first place. Two days later, after the trap had been revealed, the politician's family joined him on a boat to once again brave a crossing of the Atlantic. Fully aware that he was sending a political enemy into the beating heart of the French Empire, Louvator hastily published transcripts which suggested that the commissioner had planned to execute all white planters before proclaiming an independent nation. Obviously, the transcript was completely fabricated, but it would at least sow doubt into whatever tale the Frenchman spun to the ruling directory. In some instances, muddying the water is as good as winning an argument outright. As incredible as it may seem, Gerard reveals that the directory bought the trumped-up story, or at least pretended to, and reaffirmed its confidence in Louvator. His legacy erased Santhanax, the first man to abolish slavery in an American colony, became a footnote in history. His last relevant public statement was one that ensured France's acceptance of the man who had overthrown him, informing Paris that conditions on the island were improving. The fallen commissioner pointed out that a provisional police force organized across the whole territory has put down vagabondage, and the love of work is so strongly engraved in their hearts that the blacks from plantations that had been burned are restoring the buildings themselves. In spinning the island's problems away, Santhanax had made two errors in judgment. First, Napoleon, who had just finished his coup over the directory, cared little about the overseas empire. Secondly, 
Why upset the blacks that were supposedly working to restore Haiti's empire by overthrowing the highest ranking black official within the empire? Napoleon's laissez-faire approach to running the island from afar meant that corruption soon leached into every corner of the island. Popkin writes that French policy was to try to keep plantation policies intact so that sugar production could eventually be revived, rather than dividing them into smaller farms for individual families. French officials turned to leasing the properties to private owners, who had the resources to run them, a policy that favored wealthy and well-connected figures, such as army officers who had enriched themselves during the war. Toussaint Louverture and many of his officers were among those who acquired extensive properties for themselves in this way. Those who sought to avoid the restoration of the plantation system took refuge in the island's mountain regions eking out an existence as subsistence farmers, as though they were the island's original maroons. The result of such a large influx of settlers was the exacerbation of deforestation and soil erosion that began on the slopes and soon spread across the entirety of Haiti. These dual problems only grew worse in the 20th century, with Haitians burning charcoal derived from the island's forests as their main source of energy. Today, geography classes around the world stare at an overhead map of Haiti and the Dominican Republic. From the vantage of space, one can see a literal borderline separating a vibrant forested island from one that can only be described as desolate, barren grassland. The dichotomy is used to convince students that government policies matter when it comes to the protection of the environment. Vice President Al Gore even used that map as a part of his award-winning climate documentary. Popkins suggests that individuals living beneath Toussaint Louverture's regime should have seen the island's decline coming, as Haiti had never produced enough food to feed itself, relying on imports for most of its meat fish, and grain. Freed blacks took over some of the fields previously used for sugar in order to grow crops. Haiti would gradually be transformed into a peasant society, with small farmers producing food for themselves and a surplus to feed the rest of the population. There is little doubt that simply obtaining food was a struggle for much of the population during these years. The extent that Louverture derived his authority from the armed forces didn't help, as 10 to 15 percent of the island's young population remained employed by the armed services. This had a clear negative effect on the economy, through the creation of labor deficits as well as the fact that these men, rather than working the island's resources, tended to shake down those who were. This was a hallmark of what Popkin refers to as the Louverture state. A period from 1798 to 1801, during which time Haitian scholars identify the establishment of a centralized authoritarian government. 
And if you know anything about the nation's modern history, you don't need me to tell you that the remnants of authoritarianism has had a lasting influence on Haiti's destiny. Still, for a seven-month period, Toussaint had a free hand to act as he wanted. This freedom extended even from Paris, which he had managed to win over via a series of flattering depictions regarding his rule over the colony. But in March of 1798, he received a political shot across the bow, when Santhanax's replacement, a man carrying the last name of Hudeville, arrived unannounced via the formerly held Spanish side of the island. Gerard informs us that Louvatore took his unannounced arrival and the man's decision to land on the Spanish side of the island as proof of France's lack of trust in his loyalty. Rather than shake the boat, the newly arrived Frenchman first attempted to buy his way into the general's inner circle. When a ship captain plainly suggested that it might be time for Louvatore to take his money and retire quietly in France, Toussaint pointed to a small shrub and replied that he would only leave when it provided enough wood to build a ship of the line. He got rid of this new French overseer via a nasty rumor that the man was attempting to restore slavery to the island. Houdeville responded to the affront by disbanding Toussaint's nephew's regiment, after which 10,000 angry unemployed soldiers appeared at the gates of the city of Cap, demanding immediate island justice. With the crowd calling for his head, Napoleon's babysitter hastily set sail for mainland Europe. His confidence now at an all-time high, Louvatore began to boast that he had waged war with three countries, France, Spain, and England, and that he had won all three. The next threat to his hegemony was internal, as Andrew Regard, the biracial general who had led the Legion of the South appeared increasingly likely to challenge Toussaint's rule. In order to restock his arsenal, Louvatore looked to the United States. The two were an unlikely match, as the name Toussaint Louvatore was already being used across the South, terrifying the dinner tables of the Southern slave owners. The timing happened to be just right, however, as John Adams was currently inhabiting the Oval Office. Unlike his predecessor, or his successor, America's second president had never participated in the slave trade, and therefore wouldn't have shared Washington or Jefferson's concerns about being seen negotiating with a black man as an equal. At the moment, America had suspended all trade with France, over an undeclared quasi-war that witnessed both nations behaving badly, as though they were pirates on the high seas. Soon after his delegate met with the president, a Toussaint clause was inserted into a trade embargo bill that allowed for the U.S. to bypass its boycott of French goods in order to continue trade exclusively with Haiti. 
rather than sending a second consecutive hardliner to serve as the island's colonial minder, Paris pulled a U-turn and empowered Philippe Rome, a moderate abolitionist white planter. This time, France made sure to notify the Haitian government of their agent's arrival time and location. This proved to be a dreadful mistake, as Toussaint arranged for loyalist protesters to be lined along the thoroughfare between the port and colonial seat of power. Girard notes that by the time Rome completed his journey, he had gotten the point. He only lived at Louvatore's discretion. The agent of France immediately announced that he would do nothing without first consulting Louvatore. This was a man that the black Spartacus could live with. Keeping in line with Sun Tzu's advice to keep your enemies closer than your friends, Toussaint never let him out of his sight, even going so far as to serve as the chief witness for Rome's wedding to his mixed-race mistress, as well as overseeing the baptism of their daughter. Rome attempted to do the job to the best of his ability and passed on France's urgent desire for Louvatore to export the Haitian Revolution across the colonialized Caribbean. The reasoning was more to do with geopolitics than a desire to do the right thing, as colonial uprisings would draw England and Spain's attention away from Napoleon's incessant obsession with securing dominion over continental Europe. Gerard explains that France specifically wanted him to attack the southern United States or Jamaica. The French agent assigned to Guadalupe had already successfully invaded their neighboring islands with black freedmen, and the French were hoping to continue the strategy against their larger competitors. But Louvatore did not want to risk his life in what he viewed as some harebrained adventure overseas even one that offered the promise of altering the course of world history. At this point, it became clear for all to see that his long-term goal was not universal emancipation, but abolition in Haiti, his political rise, and the colony's economic recovery, none of which could take place if he needlessly provoked the two main naval powers of the Caribbean. He chose to pursue cooperation instead. In secret, he signed an agreement which included his promise to not invade Jamaica as long as Britain agreed to not interfere with Haiti's commerce. His excuses for delaying the exportation of the revolution soon piled up on the desk of Napoleon. Even more aggravating to France was Toussaint's inclusion of a request that England should be allowed to trade with the French island under a flag of neutrality. Rome immediately warned Toussaint that he was dangerously close to treason. In fact, you and I can both likely agree that he was well past that point. For his efforts, the flaccid French advisor slash commissioner was placed under house arrest. Gerard reveals the suspicious nature that ended up alerting Paris to the man's tenuous situation as every single one of Rome's reports after his arrest ended with explicit mentions that he had written them, quote, entirely in my hand, 
with my handwriting and my signature. Showcasing the deafness of a child who has been caught with his hand in the cookie jar, Louvator might as well have had the man write, the nicest, most loyalist man, Toussaint, absolutely, definitely, totally, 100% didn't force me to write this. As has been their way since the establishment of the Monroe Doctrine, the U.S. consulate was fully privy to the island's internal politics, and its consulate made the determination that Toussaint would soon declare independence from France. They were so sincere in their belief that America's Caribbean founding father, Alexander Hamilton, began the process of drafting a preliminary constitution for them. But Louvator's focus remained squarely on short-term threats to his rule. At the moment, that was the man who had formerly controlled the Legion of the South, Regard. After a 10-year absence, Regard had re-emerged on the scene, demanding his land and titles back. Historian Marcus Rainsford labeled them as ancient enemies. While Gerard explains the inescapable difference between the two men, pointing out that Regard was of mixed race, while Louvator was black. Regard disliked priests, whereas Louvator courted them. Regard was a southerner. Louvator was a northerner. The man was a radical in every sense of the word. At the beginning of the revolution, he had declared that no peace would be permanent until one class of people had exterminated the other. When the two finally came to blows, Regard had the upper hand, with Toussaint barely surviving an assassination attempt. And when I say narrowly, I mean it, as two bullets buzzed through the hat that he was wearing. The conflict that followed became known as the War of the Knives, and it became known for its untold levels of brutality. Toussaint's pro-plantation policies had riled up his constituents. Thus, some historians have seen the popular support for Regard as a direct response to his strict labor policies and attempts to accommodate the island's white planters. American support proved to be decisive, fearing that a regard regime would cut out U.S. trade in favor of restoring relations with France, the American fleet blockaded the southern ports, bombarded enemy positions, and transported Louvator's men to the distant front. Gerard notes that this was the first case of the U.S. military meddling in another country's internal affairs. Toussaint was thankful for the assistance, gifting the American captain of one warship more than 2,500 pounds of Haitian-brewed colonial coffee. In June, Napoleon's emissary arrived to reaffirm Toussaint's position, forcing Regard, who had initiated the conflict by credibly claiming that he had the complete support of France, into abandoning the cause as well as the island, retiring to the European nation that had abandoned him and his family. After he and the emissary departed, the carnage began anew, 
with Toussaint's general Dessalines carrying out brutal reprisals against known Regard supporters. It is widely believed that the future leader of Haiti, Dessalines, carried out the vicious attacks under direct orders from its current leader. But Toussaint publicly chastised the excesses of the purge, dressing down his former slave-turned-general by stating publicly that I told you to prune the tree, not uproot it. As many as 22,000 may have died during the so-called pruning, for which Louvatore privately promoted his gardener, Dessalines. It was now 1800, a year which turned out to be the high watermark for our revolutionary hero. Although he had at times walked the path of darkness and destruction, he had greatly improved the lives of the people who he ruled over. His policies helped to ensure that Haiti had begun to walk the path to shed its foundational history in order to become a nation of three equal races. Soon, however, his lies would get the better of him, and as control of the island's people slips from his grasp, he will find that far too few of his friends remain in his corner. His fall from power will be the focus of our next and final episode of the season. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.